Chapter Two of Phillips Brooks by Mark Antony DeWolf Howe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The reader hardly needs to be told that it was Phillips Brooks. So closely identified were his later and earlier years with Boston and Harvard College that it is hard to realize the existence of a period when Phillips Brooks was something of a stranger in the place of his birth and longest residence. None had a better inherited right to be known in Massachusetts than he who took pleasure in calling John Cotton his very great-grandfather. This relationship was on his father's side. On his mother's he could claim a common descent with the founder of Phillips Academy, Andover, and with Wendell Phillips. His mother, Mary Ann Phillips, has been defined as gifted with a genius for religion. The simple fact that four of her six sons entered the ministry of the Protestant Episcopal Church speaks volubly for her influence. William Gray Brooks, the father of this family, was a substantial Boston merchant of strong physique, integrity, and will. Phillips Brooks, the second of his sons, was born in Boston December 13, 1835. The boy was baptized by the Unitarian minister of the First Church in Chauncey Place, which the family attended. It is curious that they should soon have done precisely what Phillips Brooks, in his own ministry, led many Unitarians to do, transfer their allegiance to the Church of Episcopacy. In 1839, Mr. and Mrs. Brooks became members of St. Paul's Church, of which the Rev. Dr. Alexander H. Venton was soon to become the rector. The personal influence of a clergyman like Dr. Venton in the household of a parishioner like his vestryman, Mr. Brooks, may be powerful for good, and so it was in this case. To the wise influence of Dr. Venton, at several critical points in the lifetime of Phillips Brooks, the younger man owed a debt of gratitude which he was always ready to acknowledge. The effective influences of Phillips Brooks' boyhood were by no means only those of religion. In the middle years of the century, the life of a Boston boy, born into the best circumstances of the place, had the power to plant in the right soil many seeds of fruitful manhood. The domestic life of the period was marked with a simple dignity. There was no dearth of older men to whom the younger could look up, and learn the true meaning and value of distinction. These, in a manner, were the advantages of an aristocracy. To hold them in their just weight, there were the compensating democratic advantages of training in the public schools. Here the boy learned to think of his city as the impartial mother of all, and rubbed his wits and shoulders against those of other boys of all degrees. The trouble was with the boy himself, if the combining influences did not bring him early to some realization of things as they are. The joint effect of these influences was clearly to be seen in Phillips Brooks. With his spirit of democracy were mingled some of the best qualities of the patrician, and these in turn could never so take possession of him as to make him forget that he and the man of humblest intellect and station were essentially brothers. Of the outward circumstances of the boy's schooling it is not worth while to recall many details. 
he was sent first to the Adams School and then to the Boston Latin School. The value he placed upon the training of this institution is fully set forth in the historical address he delivered at the two hundred and fiftieth anniversary of its founding. To find himself in the same scholastic succession with Franklin, the Adamses, John Hancock, Emerson, Motley, Sumner, and Phillips, this alone must have been a strong inward stimulus to a boy keenly responsive to suggestion. Outwardly he made himself remembered as one who wrought a just blending of study and play, taking part and pleasure in baseball games on the common, but not in the sports or pranks which called forth the more boisterous elements of young human nature. With the class of 1855 he entered Harvard College, and here his record followed naturally upon that of his school days. Felton, Agassiz, and Longfellow were members of the strong teaching force, at the head of which stood President Walker, one of the men to whom Phillips Brooks felt himself most indebted. In general, the young man's scholarship was of fair but not exceptional rank. The single point in which he seems to have shown real distinction was that of writing. In this he proved and maintained an easy mastery. In these days also he formed his habits and tastes of reading widely in the books best worth reading. As Browning, whose Rabbi Ben Ezra he never wearied of quoting, was, a few years later, the poet of his special admiration, in college it is said to have been Tennyson. In memoriam, perhaps always the poem of all poems for which he cared most, had been published only a year before Phillips Brooks became a collegian, and the enthusiasm of such a youth for such a poem, still fresh to the world, is easy to imagine. But apart from the more and less humane letters of the college course, there were other things which enlisted the healthy interest of the young man, as a single illustration of the fact that so early as this no human thing was utterly foreign to Phillips Brooks, one is not sorry to find his name on the program of the Hasty Pudding Club theatricals of his class. In the catalogue of alumni he might have seen that twenty-six men named Phillips and twenty-two named Brooks had received degrees from the college before his class of 1855. When his own graduation came, he had every reason to bear away from the four years of his Cambridge life, and from all the years preceding them, a deep-rooted loyalty to the alma mater, which had given him of her fullness, and must be repaid out of his. The year which followed the graduation of Phillips Brooks stands alone in the record of his life as a year of unmistakable failure. He became an usher in the Boston Latin School, still under the mastership of Francis Gardner, his own teacher. When he made the historical address to the alumni of the school in 1885, it must have been with a certain satisfaction that he repeated Mr. Gardner's opinion of the man who failed as a schoolteacher, that he could never succeed in any capacity. So much wiser than Mr. Gardner, through no virtue of our own, are we of later years that we do not even like to think what might have happened 
if Phillips Brooks had succeeded as a school teacher. It is good to know that his failure lay simply in his inability to discipline the more difficult boys. With the better pupils he was eminently a success. When his failure was apparent, and the authorities had found a man to take his place, he resigned in February and spent the remainder of the school year without occupation at his father's house. Probably this was the very discipline which Phillips Brooks most needed at the time. It forced him to search his heart and decide what was indeed the work for him to do in the world. Toward making this decision, he sought the advice of Dr. Vinton and President Walker, and both of them, in common with every domestic influence and a powerful inward impulse, urged him to enter the ministry. It was in compliance with the sage counsel of Dr. Vinton that he went for his theological education to the seminary at Alexandria, Virginia. Harvard College had contributed its share of critical and scholarly elements to the training of this son of hers. It was something far different which the Alexandria Seminary had to give him. The distinguishing mark of this school was its evangelical fervor. A large percentage of its graduates became missionaries, and so low church were all its tendencies that a witty alumnus has seen fit to point out the astonishing fact that very few of his Alexandria brethren have become extreme ritualists. Most influential in the seminary was the Reverend Dr. William Sparrow, a man of great learning and piety, whose influence led Phillips Brooks many years later to describe him as one of the three or four men whom I have known whom I look upon with perpetual gratitude for the help and direction they have given to my life, and whose power I feel in forms of action and kinds of thought very different from those in which I had specifically to do with them. The man of whom these words could be written must have possessed some merely intellectual power above and beyond the average of intellect displayed at Alexandria. On his first night at the school, the young Bostonian stood amazed at the religious zeal of the young men who poured out their souls at a prayer meeting. On the next day, in the recitation room, he was no less amazed to find these same young men entirely unprepared in their studies. The boiler, as he afterwards described the phenomenon, had no connection with the engine. In Cambridge he had doubtless been more familiar with the spectacle of engines detached from boilers. From these new surroundings there were obvious advantages to be gained by a student for the ministry. Yet this one apparently never reconciled himself entirely to the change of atmosphere. For in his last year at the seminary he wrote to an intimate friend whose course was completed when are you coming to see us? Leave your intellect behind. You won't need it here. Against the bodily discomforts of the place, the young student had corresponding grounds for complaint. The present Bishop of New York, we are told, took pity on the tall newcomer assigned to a room in which he could not stand up and a bed from which his feet protruded far, and gave him the freedom of his own quarters. 
Others also have borne witness to the immediate recognition of his power as a writer. Until a special task called for the exercise of this gift, it was not remarked that his talents were extraordinary. But here, as at Cambridge, he showed at once that in the writing of his mother tongue he stood supreme among his fellows. Here, too, in some sonnets read before the Seminary Rhetorical Society, he revealed the presence of that poetic endowment upon which many would have been glad to see him call more frequently than for the carols with which he supplied his Sunday schools from time to time. At least one of these, O Little Town of Bethlehem, written for the Sunday School of Holy Trinity Church, Philadelphia, has taken a definite place in the religious poetry of the language. Every preacher, he believed, must be something of a poet, and scattered everywhere through the sermons of Phillips Brooks are the fragments which show us how he lived up to this article of his belief. It was in the neighborhood of Alexandria that the great preacher made his humble beginnings at preaching. Three miles from the seminary was a chapel, attended for the most part by poor whites, to whom the students rendered a half-fledged ministry. Mr. Brooks himself used to tell of the response he elicited from a countryman of the region by an invitation to attend the chapel services. Stranger, we don't like you fellows coming down and practicizing on us. If, however, one were to believe and recount all the anecdotes of Phillips Brooks, the writing of books far larger than this one would be called for. The obscure Virginia chapel would be at once an important scene of story. On the one hand, it is said, and probably with truth, that the first efforts of the untried speaker filled him with discouragement. On the other, probably with more of romance than of accuracy, we hear of the ignominious defeat which he visited upon an opposition party in the chapel, headed by a northern unbeliever who finally was brought with all but one of his followers to baptism and confirmation. The report of this triumph, we also hear, brought from Philadelphia the representatives of the first parish of which Phillips Brooks had charge. They listened to his preaching, the story goes, and begged him on the spot to become their minister. This is not an incident to which the reader is asked to give entire credence, but, like many another anecdote of Phillips Brooks, it is true in spirit, if not in letter, and might even be classed with the stories which ought to be true, if they are not. The present writer, however, does not set himself to deal with doubtful statements, but prefers to bring to an end this hasty review of the seminary days with the prophetic words of one of the Alexandria professors, that young man is fitted for any position that the church has to give him. End of chapter 2